The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 67. To the chief musician on stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. God be merciful to us and bless us, and cause his face to shine upon us, Selah, that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth, Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Then the earth shall yield her increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. All right, we are in Numbers chapter 2. We're going to do the whole chapter today. It will go quickly, so don't panic. It's a lot of verses, but it will go quickly. We're in Numbers 2, verses 1 through 34. It's entitled, The Layout of the Tribes. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard. Beside the emblems of his father's house, they shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting. On the east side, toward the rising of the sun, those of the standard of the forces with Judah shall camp according to their armies, and Nashon, the son of Amminadab, shall be the leader of the children of Judah. And his army was numbered at 74,600. Those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar. And Nathanael, the son of Zuar, shall be the leader of the children of Issachar. And his army was numbered at 54,400. Then comes the tribe of Zebulun. And Eliab, the son of Halon, shall be the leader of the children of Zebulun. And his army was numbered at 57,400. All who are numbered according to the armies of the forces with Judah, 186,400, these shall break camp First, verse 10, on the south side shall be the standard with the forces with Reuben, according to their armies, and the leader of the children of Reuben shall be Elitzor, the son of Shedeur, and his army was numbered at 46,500. Those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Simeon, and the leader of the children of Simeon shall be Shalumiel, the son of Zorashadai, and his army was numbered at 59,300. Then comes the tribe of Gad, and the leader of the children of Gad shall be Eliasaph, the son of Reuel, and his army was numbered at 45,650. All who are numbered according to their armies of the forces with Reuben, 151,450, they shall be the second to break camp. And the tabernacle of meeting shall move out with the camp of the Levites in the middle of the camps as they camp, so they shall move out everyone in his place by their standards." On the west side shall be the standard of the forces with Ephraim, according to their armies, and the leader of the children of Ephraim shall be Elishama, the son of Amihud. And his army was numbered at 40,500. Next to him comes the tribe of Manasseh, and the leader of the children of Manasseh shall be Gamaliel, the son of Padazur. And his army was numbered at 32,200. Then comes the tribe of Benjamin, and the leader of the children of Benjamin shall be Abidan, the son of Gideoni. And his army was numbered at 35,400. 
all who were numbered according to their armies of the forces with Ephraim, 108,100, they shall be third to break camp. The standard of the forces with Dan shall be on the north side according to their armies, and the leader of the children of Dan shall be Ahizer, the son of Amishadai. Then his army was numbered at 62,700. Those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Asher, and the leader of the children of Asher shall be Pagiel, the son of Okran. Then his army was numbered at 41,500. Then comes the tribe of Naphtali, and the leader of the children of Naphtali shall be Ahira, the son of Anan. And his army was numbered at 53,400. All who are numbered of the forces with Dan, 157,600. They shall break camp last with their standards. These are the ones who are numbered of the children of Israel. By their father's houses, all who are numbered according to their armies of the forces were 603,550. But the Levites were not numbered among the children of Israel, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Thus the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So they camped by their standards, and so they broke camp, each one by his family, according to their father's houses. As I said, that's a lot of verses. It'll go really quickly. You'll be surprised. In the verses of this chapter, we see the tribe of Judah is said to be on the east side toward the rising of the sun. Now, while I'm going through the sermon with you, think of this church, okay? The east is in that direction, the west is here, the south is here, and the north is here. So just think of this as the tabernacle. The Lord is in the west, okay? Kind of in that direction. So you can kind of get an idea of what's going on. There is a debate what it means when it says he's on the east side toward the rising of the sun. Some scholars put Judah to the far east, and then the other tribes co-located with him to the west, closer to the sanctuary. Others will put him in the middle of the three, with one on each side of him. And others will put him on the east side of the sanctuary, directly next to it, and the other tribes yet further east. It actually makes a difference, which is correct, at least from a theological sense. But before I explain that, I'd like to read a portion of the words from the pulpit commentary concerning the camp layout as we have just read. The Targum of Palestine, which embodies the traditional learning of the Palestinian Jews of the 17th century, says that the camp covered a space of, get this, 12 square miles. Modern writers, starting from some measurements of the Roman camps given by Polybius, compute the necessary space at three or three and a half miles square. It's still very large area, whether it's three and a half miles square or 12 miles. Somewhere in that area is the size of camp it would have to be for these people to be that number, 603,550 men plus Levites plus women, plus children, goats, etc. It's a very large area. We'll go on. This would require the strictest discipline and economy of space and makes no provision for cattle. But supposing that the women and children were closely packed, it might suffice. It is, however, evident that there would be very few places in the wilderness, if any, where more than three square miles of fairly level ground could be found. In the plains of Moab, the desired room might perhaps have been found, but scarcely anywhere in the wilderness of Paran. We must conclude, therefore, that this order of encampment was an ideal order, beautiful indeed by reason of its faultless regularity and equality, but only to be attained in practice as circumstances should permit more or less. Here is one of those cases in which the spiritual significance of an order is of such importance 
that it matters comparatively little whether it could actually be literally carried out or not. What they are saying is that for the most of their time in the wilderness, and because of the immense size of the congregation, there simply wasn't enough space for the camps to be laid out as is specified here in Numbers chapter 2. Thus, the presentation is one of intent, but not actuality at all times. Understanding this, we can take a brief journey to Washington, D.C., where the Washington Monument is located. As a monument, it is the tallest of all federal monuments in the district. Capping the monument is an aluminum pyramid which is 22.6 centimeters high and 13.9 centimeters at its base. It weighs 2.85 pounds. At the time of its completion, the monument was the tallest man-made structure in the world. Even higher than the pyramids of Giza, by the way. Even today, at 555 feet, it is the tallest freestanding masonry structure in the entire world. It has a corresponding base of 55 feet as well. So it's 555 feet tall, it's 55 by 55 by 55 by 55 at the base. On each side of this aluminum cap, inscriptions are made. On the north, south, and east, there are names, dates, and information related to the monument. The east side of the cap contains these two words, Los Deo. What this means is that as the sun rises over the district each day, the first thing that it alights upon, which belongs to the people of this nation, are the words, praise God. Somebody had been reading his Bible, and somebody also felt that honoring God as he directs to Israel in his word was a fitting way to cap this marvelous monument belonging to the people. The approving committee obviously agreed. Our text verse comes from Numbers chapter 24, it's verses 5 and 6. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Israel, under ideal circumstances, was to be a praise and a glory to God. They were to encamp around him as a holy people. The word used in Numbers 2 verse 3 to state where Judah was to be situated is Kedemah, or eastward. It is variously translated as to the east, eastward, or on the east side, and so on. Based on the naming of Judah, meaning praise, it seems unlikely that they would be anything but holy eastward as the lead tribe, both when camping and departing for subsequent locations. This seems to be the intent of what is meant when Judah is mentioned eastward, towards the rising of the sun. The Lord was giving a theological lesson in what he expected of his people. That lesson is one of many treasures which is to be found in his superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have just one thought for you today, chapter 2 of the book of Numbers. Verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the first of nine times that the Lord is said to speak to both Moses and Aaron in the book of Numbers. With the numbers now settled from the census, the divisions of those who have been numbered will be directed where to camp in relation to the tabernacle itself. As is typical in scripture, there is a logical progression of thought as each step proceeds on to the next. 
When something seems out of order, it is usually because it is given to provide an unusual sense of clarity about a matter which otherwise might have been overlooked. The Lord has built his house. He's given instructions concerning it and how he is to be approached and how his people are to act. He then counted the number of his subjects. He will now order them according to a set plan to march towards Canaan. Verse 2, every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard. The words of this verse are similar to verse 152 with some variation. As noted in that verse, the degel, or standard, is specified for the layout of the divisions. The account will focus on four main standards. Under these four standards is another division. Verse 2 continues, beside the emblems of his father's house. There are 12 named tribes. Leaving out Levi and dividing Joseph into Ephraim and Manasseh makes 12. These words indicate 12 emblems. The word translated here as emblem is the word ot. It signifies a sign. It is something distinguishing. It can be a sign such as the heavenly bodies, which are used for signs and for seasons, way back in Genesis chapter 1. It can be a sign such as the sign of circumcision. It can be a miracle, which then proves the power of the Lord, thus being a sign to the people. In this case, it is a sign or emblem, which distinguished the Father's house. Jewish commentaries deal with what the 12 household banners were. The Bible does not. Only the four main standards can be inferred as to what they actually were. Verse 2 continues, They shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting. No specific distance is given, but it is likely that they were 2,000 cubits from the tent of meeting. That is over a half of a mile. This can be inferred from what is stated in Joshua 3, verse 4, where it says, Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. This is speculation, but it is a set distance which is explicitly given as a marker of separation. It would then be a suitable distance to allow for all of the Levites who will camp between the 12 tribes and the tent of meeting. Such a distance was to imprint upon the people the holiness of God and their inability to approach him directly unless they came with proper sacrifices and through an acceptable mediator. The separation then is thus a picture of our separation from God and our need for Christ Jesus as our sacrifice and Christ as our high priest and our mediator. It is likely, if the coming of the Lord is soon, as it surely is, that this is a picture of the separation between Christ's first advent and our ability to come near God. 2,000 cubits then would be reflective of the 2,000 years that the church needs to traverse before they can come near to God in reality. Now, as I said, this is speculation based on Joshua 3, verse 4. But in Joshua 3, that is what that is pointing to. I guarantee it. Verse 3, on the east side, toward the rising of the sun, those of the standard of the forces with Judah shall camp according to their armies. The wording here is very specific. It first identifies Kedemah, or eastward, and then Mitzrachah, or toward where the sun rises. Kedem, or east, needs to be understood. It's a rather complicated thing until you get it straight. But first, Judah is before the other tribes. But the word Kedem is figuratively used to signify the past, or former times. The garden which was in Eden was eastward, 
And when man was cast out of the garden, the cherubim were placed at the east end of the garden to guard the way to the tree of life. Likewise, the cherubim woven into the veil before the ark faced east. It is now in the east, in this advanced location, that the forces of Judah are instructed to be camped under their degel, or standard. The standard of Judah is that of a lion. How we can determine the four standards will be explained later. The name Judah means praise. As the advanced guard of the armies of Israel, it would then indicate to us the thought, praise first before the Lord. Judah is first in praise, and Judah is already known to be the tribe from which Messiah would come. Judah is east, or from before, just as Messiah would have his origins from of old, even from everlasting, as prophesied by the prophet Micah. And yet, he would be the day spring from on high, as prophesied by Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Everything about the tribe and its placement points to Messiah. Verse 3 continues, And Nashon, the son of Amminadab, shall be the leader of the children of Judah. As seen in chapter 1, Nashon means enchanter or serpent person. Amminadab means my kinsman is noble or people of the prince. Verse 4, and his army was numbered at 74,600. This is the total recorded in verse 127. Verse 5, those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar. And Nathanael, the son of Zuar, shall be the leader of the children of Issachar. Issachar is next named and would be camped next to, but probably west of Judah. As I said, Judah is said to be eastward, and it's actually unclear if he was furthest east or simply eastward of the sanctuary with the other tribes yet further east. I would say furthest east, as I already explained why, because they are east. East means praise. They're to go first before the Lord in all things praising God, etc. All of these reasons point to the fact that Judah is probably furthest east and then the other tribes are closer to the sanctuary. Issachar is under Judah's degel or standard. Issachar means he is wages. Nathanael is named as their leader. Nathanael means given of God. He is the son of Zuar or little one. Issachar is the littlest of these three tribes to the east. Verse 6, and his army was numbered at 54,400. This is the total that was recorded in verse 129. Verse 7, then comes the tribe of Zebulun. And Eliav, the son of Helon, shall be the leader of the children of Zebulun. Zebulun would be next to, but west of Issachar, but still under the Degel or standard of Judah. Zebulun means glorious dwelling place. It's a fitting name for being closest to the sanctuary on the east side. Eliav means my God is father. Halon means very strong. Verse 8, and his army was numbered at 57,400. This is the total recorded in verse 131. Verse 9, all who were numbered according to their armies of the forces with Judah, 186,400, these shall break camp first. A lot of repetition here from the previous verses, isn't it? But he's making a point. We're getting to it. We'll get to it in a couple of sermons. Everything is leading to something else. The combined strength of the three tribes, all under one standard, that of Judah, is listed. Then it is specifically noted that these three together shall break camp first. Judah means praise, and thus, like their camping, it forms a picture for us to understand. Praise is to go first before the Lord. It is of note that these first three tribes have been placed next to one another as nearest of kin. Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun are the three youngest sons born to Leah. 
As Judah was the oldest of the three, the two younger tribes would not begrudge their older brother being chief of their companies. Verse 10, on the south side shall be the standard of the forces with Reuben, according to their armies. The next Degel, or standard, is that of Reuben. The standard of Reuben is that of a man. Reuben is the furthest Teman, or south of the sanctuary. The word Teman is the same as Yamin, or right, because the south is the right side of a person when he is facing east. Reuben means, see, a son. As Jesus is the Son of God, he is also at the right hand of God. Verse 10 continues. See, everything is making little pictures. It's, it's a lot of little stuff that fits together into pictures, and then eventually one big, beautiful picture is going to come out of it. Verse 10 continues. And the leader of the children of Reuben shall be Elitzur, the son of Shedeur. Elitzur means God of the rock. Isaiah 51 verse 1 combines righteousness in with the rock. Shedeur means spreader of light. As the south side receives the greater illumination of the sun in the northern hemisphere, it seems both names are well suited to the right side. Verse 11, and his army was numbered at 46,500. This is the total recorded in verse 121. Verse 12, those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Simeon, and the leader of the tribe of Simeon shall be Shalumiel, the son of Zorashadai. Simeon falls under the Degel, or standard of Reuben. He would probably camp next to, but north of Reuben. Simeon means he who hears. Shalumiel means peace of God. Psalm 85 verse 10 combines righteousness in with peace. Zurishadai means rock of the Almighty. Again, the idea of the rock and righteousness are seen on the right side. The names do fit their location. Verse 13, and his army was numbered at 59,300. This is the total recorded in verse 123. Verse 14, then comes the tribe of Gad. And the leader of the children of Gad shall be Eliasaph, the son of Reuel. Gad falls under the Degel, or standard of Reuben. He would camp next to, but north of Simeon. Gad means both troop and fortune. Eliasaph means God has added. The name Reuel is an interchange recorded in some manuscripts. I mentioned this a couple of sermons ago. I want you to understand it now. In chapter 1, the name is Deuel. Deuel means known of God. Reuel means friend of God. The letters Dalit and Resh are extremely similar in appearance, and so they are often interchanged. Some people will say it's by accident. Some people will say it's on purpose. But I want you to know that the guy mentioned in chapter 1 is the same guy that's here with a difference in spelling of his name. Verse 15, and his army was numbered at 45,650. This is the total recorded in verse 125. Verse 16, all who are numbered according to their armies of the forces with Reuben, 151,450, they shall be the second to break camp. The combined strength of the three tribes, all under one standard, that of Reuben, is listed. Reuben is the firstborn, but he lost his right to this, and so his standard is second behind Judah. Simeon was born after Reuben, and so he's rightly placed with Reuben. And then Gad was the son of their mother, Leah's handmaid. Thus, he is rightly placed under both of them. Verse 17, And the tabernacle of meeting shall move out with the camp of the Levites in the middle of the camps as they camp. So they shall move out everyone in his place by their standards. At first, one might assume that there is a contradiction in the Bible between here and chapter 10. In verse 1017, it says that the tabernacle was taken down and the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari set out carrying the tabernacle. 
If the translations followed the original, there would be no contradiction. The words here in this verse, verse 17, are ohel moed. It's the tent of meeting, not the tabernacle of meeting. In verse 10, 17, it says mishchan, or tabernacle. The tabernacle is contained within the tent of meeting, and thus it is divided up and it is moved at different times between various tribes. This is confirmed in Numbers 10, verse 21, where the holy things from the tabernacle were transported after Reuben's group. This might seem uninteresting to you until someone tries to trip up your faith by showing you a supposed contradiction which stems from an incorrect translation, like originally the Geneva Bible, which was copied by the King James Version, and then it was copied by this version, the New King James Version. They perpetuated an error in the translation, and so people say, see, there's a contradiction when there is no contradiction. This doesn't say that the tent of meeting would follow Reuben. It simply says that it will move out in the middle of the camps. No error exists. Verse 18, on the west side shall be the standard of the forces with Ephraim, according to their armies. The next degel, or standard, is that of Ephraim. The standard of Ephraim is that of an ox. Ephraim is the furthest yam, or west of the sanctuary. The word yam means sea, as in the Sea of Galilee. When facing east in Israel, the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, is to the west. But more, when facing the throne, symbolically in the west, in Revelation 4, verse 6, it says, just before the throne, there is a sea like glass. Ephraim means double fruitful. So now we have something already in the alignment of these tribes. We have something all the way from back in Genesis, right? The Garden of Eden and the, the uh, cherubim being placed on the east of the, the um, garden after man was expelled. And then we have in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, a sea before the throne, which is in the west. So everything in the Bible is forming a picture, one marvelous picture, and we have to figure out what's going on. And it's verses like this in chapters that most people will never read or read one time and never read again, where all of that important information is contained. And if you don't understand what's going on here, you're not going to understand the next picture and then the next picture and then the next picture when everything, every detail points to Jesus Christ. Everything. This is a unified whole, which is marvelous in what it details. But it's difficult. It's hard work. I'm telling you, when I typed a sermon, I went to bed with a headache because I've got to research every single word to make sure that it's properly aligned with what God says. But all you need to do is just listen. You don't have to get it all in your head. Just listen and absorb what you can. But it is making us a picture that will be revealed from Genesis to Revelation, God's unfolding plan of redemption. Verse 18 continues, And the leader of the children of Ephraim shall be Elishama, the son of Amihud. Elishama means God has heard. Amihud means my kinsman is glorious. Verse 19, And his army was numbered at 40,500. This is the total which was recorded in verse 133. Verse 20, next to him comes the tribe of Manasseh, and the leader of the children of Manasseh shall be Gamaliel, the son of Padazur. Manasseh falls under the Degel, or standard, of Ephraim. He would probably camp next to, but east of Ephraim. Manasseh means to forget, but it also means from a debt. Gamaliel means reward of God. Padazur means the rock has ransomed. Verse 21, and his army was numbered at 32,200. This is the total recorded in verse 135. Verse 22, then comes the tribe of Benjamin, and the leader of the children of Benjamin shall be Abidan, the son of Gideoni. 
Benjamin falls under the Degel or standard of Ephraim. He would camp next to, but east of Manasseh. Benjamin means son of my right hand. Abidan means father of judgment. Gideoni means feller, as in one who cuts down. These names, along with the tribes they belong to, all fit well with the placement to the west. Verse 23, and his army was numbered at 35,400. This is the total recorded in verse 137. Verse 24, all who are numbered according to their armies of the forces with Ephraim, 108,100, they shall be the third to break camp. The combined strength of the three tribes, all under one standard, that of Ephraim, is listed. All three of these are of the lineage of Rachel. Benjamin was born to her. Ephraim and Manasseh were sons of Rachel's son, Joseph. It is logical to have them here because it is a close family grouping. It also forms a beautiful, a beautiful picture of the Lord's workings in redemption as we will eventually see. It won't be today. Verse 25, the standard of the forces with Dan shall be on the north side according to their armies. The final degel or standard is that of Dan. The standard of Dan is an eagle. Dan is the furthest Safon or north of the sanctuary. The word Safon means hidden and thus dark. It carries the sense of being gloomy or unknown because the north receives the least sunlight in the northern hemisphere. Dan means judge. Verse 25 continues, And the leader of the children of Dan shall be Ahizer, the son of Amishadai. Ahizer means brother of help. Amishadai means my kinsman is the Almighty. Verse 26, And his army was numbered at 62,700. This is the total recorded in verse 139. Verse 27, those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Asher, and the leader of the children of Asher shall be Pagiel, the son of Okran. Asher falls under the Degel, or standard of Dan. He would camp next to, but probably south of Dan. Asher means happy. Pagiel means occurrence of God. Okran means troubled. Verse 28, and his army was numbered at 41,500. This is the total recorded in verse 141. Verse 29, then comes the tribe of Naphtali, and the leader of the children of Naphtali shall be Ahira, the son of Anan. Naphtali falls under the Degel, or standard of Dan. He would camp next to, but south of Asher. Naphtali means my wrestling, or my twisting. Ahira means brother of purpose. Anan means having fountains, or having eyes. Verse 30, and his army was numbered at 53,400. This is the total recorded in verse 143. Verse 31, all who are numbered with the forces with Dan, 157,600. The combined strength of the three tribes, all under one standard, that of Dan is listed. Dan was the oldest son of the handmaid Bilhah. To him is added the two younger sons born to the handmaids. Thus, there would be a closeness in their grouping because of this. As you can see, under these four groupings, there is an immense wisdom in how they are organized. The families were most closely united in these four groupings. Also, the grouping with Dan is the second largest grouping, and it is the last to set out. Thus, the front guard is the largest, and the rear guard is the second largest. There is wisdom in the military groupings as well. Verse 31 continues, they shall break camp last with their standards. Here the word last is aharon. It is essentially the opposite of the word kadem, which was used for Judah. Whereas Kedem is east, Aharon signifies west when facing east. Whereas Kedem means before, Aharon signifies behind. But when speaking of time, Kedem speaks of the past, 
the first or former times, but acharon speaks of the future, the last or latter times. So if you understand time, the last is actually forward and the former is actually the first, okay? So you have to understand this because when the Bible speaks about something happening in the last times, it's looking in that direction, not in that direction, even though the word for that direction is pointing that way. Okay, you all got that? It, what we could do really quickly is I'll just stop and think of the nature of God, okay? Will we ever see God the Father? We are always looking forward to God the Father. He is always in that direction. We're always striving for him. So if you think of the nature of God, what is happening in the Bible is being presented in the best possible way for our minds to grasp what is going on in redemptive history, okay? Verse 32, these are the ones who are numbered of the children of Israel by their father's houses. All who were numbered according to their armies of the forces were 603,550. This verse is derived from the totals relayed to us in verses 145 and 46. Verse 33, but the Levites were not numbered among the children of Israel, just as the Lord commanded Moses. This is in accord with the Lord's words to Moses in verses 147 through 53. Verse 34 is the last verse of the day. Thus the children of Israel did according to all the Lord commanded Moses. So they camped by their standards and so they broke camp each one by his family, according to their father's houses. The words here are taken in a future manner and apply to the entire duration of the wilderness wanderings. The people are still at Sinai and they have not yet departed. But when they did, the record here shows that the manner laid out by Moses was followed according to the word of the Lord. This was a systematic camping which in ideal conditions was so beautiful and so perfectly laid out that it caused Balaam to cry out the words, which were our text verse of the day. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, as they were scattered out on the plains below the mountain that he was on. With this chapter now finished, we still need to have explained how we can deduce what the degel or standard for each of these four groupings was. Tradition says what they are, which is often more than useless and which normally leads to something meaning whatever one wishes. But the Bible also alludes to each. First is the standard of Judah. It is the lion. Only one time in the entire Bible is the lion specifically connected to Jesus. That is found in Revelation 5, verse 5, with these words. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. The obvious connotation then is that the lion is specifically connected to Judah. This is confirmed by what is stated in the book of Genesis. When Jacob blessed his 12 sons, he said this to Judah, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. He's making a pun on his name because Judah means praise. So Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? If we can determine one other standard, then we can form a pattern. And it can be done. Ephraim is represented by an ox several times in Scripture. The first time is in Deuteronomy 33. In the blessing of Joseph, of which Ephraim was the preeminent son, he is equated to a wild ox in verse 17. In Hosea 10, verse 11, Ephraim is called a trained heifer, meaning an ox. 
He is again called a bull in Jeremiah 31 verse 18. These are sufficient to give us two of the standards based on a vision of four living creatures which are seen in the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 1 verses 10 and 11 it says this, As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man, each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side, each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and each of the four had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces. Ezekiel beheld a vision of four creatures, four living creatures, each with four faces. The faces are first described as a man. Thus, it is the one that Ezekiel is seeing first. In other words, he's looking at these things and he sees the man first. Okay? To the right is a lion in his vision. The right from Ezekiel's position then corresponds to the east of the tribes that are laid out here in the book of Numbers. Thus, the man would be to the south facing him where Reuben would be, and on the left, meaning the west, was an ox. That matches where Ephraim, the ox, is, according to the camp layout. And that leaves the eagle facing north, where Dan is. Thus we can, with all certainty, see that the four standards of the tribes, Judah is a lion, Reuben is a man, Ephraim is an ox, and Dan is an eagle. And from there, we can see the intended order of these in a numerical sequence, which is found in the book of Revelation. Here's what it says in Revelation chapter 4. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Why is this important? The order of the faces is described by John in the same order as the layout of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew describes Jesus as the son of David and thus a king. The symbol of a king is the lion. The king is equated to a lion in Proverbs chapter 19 with these words. The king's wrath is like a roaring of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. Kings are equated again with lions in Jeremiah 50 verse 17. It says, Israel is like a scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First, the king of Assyria devoured him. Now at last, this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has broken his bones. He's equating kings with lions. The symbolism is found again in Ezekiel 32, verse 2. Next, Mark focuses on Jesus, the servant. The ox is considered a servant animal. In the third gospel, Luke's focus is on Jesus' humanity, calling Christ the Son of Man. He uses the term 26 times in this way. And finally, John focuses on Christ's deity, calling him the Son of God, specifically 10 times, but alluding to the Father-Son relationship continually. The eagle is thus a symbol of John's gospel, reflecting the divine nature of Christ. The camps are laid out by the four standards in Numbers. The standards are revealed to us in Ezekiel, and their order is given to us in the book of Revelation, an order that matches that of the four gospels. Thus, the four sets of tribes consisting of 12 individual tribes branching out from the tabernacle to the east, to the west, to the south, and to the north are reflective of the four gospels. They are the witnesses of the Lord who came and who tabernacled among us. What is recorded there reveals what we have anticipated throughout the entire Old Testament, and that is then explained in the rest of Scripture as to the person of Jesus Christ and to his work and how it pertains to us. 
as the sanctuary itself was in every single detail a picture of Christ, so the Gospels are a revelation of Christ. The people of Israel were to be the heralds of Christ to the world, a light to the nations. Their physical encampment around the sanctuary was a picture of a spiritual truth that the gospel would, in fact, go out to all four corners of the earth, north, south, east, and west. In the end, it is all about Jesus Christ. He is the praise of God. He is the one who is set before all things, and he is the king. He is the servant of God and the son of man. He is the son of God and the sanctuary for our souls. He is, indeed, all of these things and so much more. In the end, the pictures continue to develop into one grand theme, and that theme is Jesus. It is all about Jesus. More lies ahead when we continue on in the book of Numbers, so stay tuned. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that these are difficult verses, and I know that there is so much information you can't remember anything of it. But it's all written down, and if you ever say, I want to know what that was, you can go back and you can either watch the video or you can read the written sermon online, and it will re-explain to you why the Lord is doing this. Every single thing is taking us to a logical point, and then he explains in a grand picture of what that logical point means, and from there he moves on to another picture. Every single detail of the construction of the ark, you remember, every one of them pictured Jesus. Every single detail, every word pointed to Jesus in one way or another. And then we got into the book of Leviticus and you said, oh my gosh, I can't stand it. All the sacrifices and all the, the simplest word from every sacrifice pointed to Jesus. What does fat signify? What does the liver signify? Every single word he put in there for a reason. It's because he is trying to get us to do one thing. And that is to wake up, to wake up and say, I love you enough to enter into the stream of humanity and take away the sin debt that you bear. And how am I going to do that? Am I just going to pop in here and arrive and say, okay, here I am? No, I'm going to give you pictures of me all the way through the Old Testament, again and again and again and again, pointing to what I will do so that when I come, there will be absolutely no mistake. God spent 1,600 years of human history writing the pages of the Bible for us through 40 different men in many different countries and in three different languages. And yet the message is completely unified, completely. Everything fits seamlessly, harmoniously. It is absolutely astonishing what it does. But passages like this have their purpose. And they're to lead us to an understanding of the layout of the tribes, picturing the four gospels so that when Jesus comes, we can say, I understand that part of that picture. And bigger ones are coming. So please keep that in mind. And now that I've explained that to you, I want to explain to you the purpose of Jesus having come. And that's because we all have something in our lives. Every one of us has something in our lives, whether we want to admit it or not. And it is called sin. We've all done something wrong. We've all offended an infinitely holy God. And because of that, the fellowship is broken. We are separated eternally from God because of our sin. And he doesn't want it that way, but he's infinite and we're finite and he cannot fellowship with a finite creature that is filled with sin when he is infinite and perfectly holy. And so what did he do? He came out of the eternal realm. He stepped into this time-space continuum that we are in and he united with human flesh. He took on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, born under the law, so that he could redeem the people under the law. He gave that life up after living out that law perfectly that you and I could never do. He gave it up on the cross of Calvary. He did that so that we could be reconciled to his father once again. 
Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And no shedding of blood apart from Jesus Christ is acceptable. The book of Hebrews makes that absolutely clear. Unless you come to God through Jesus Christ, you will forever be separated from him. You can say, well, that's unfair. What's unfair? We're already separated from him. What he did was to bring us back to himself. And he gives us the choice. If there isn't something more fair on this planet, you tell me what it is. That he would do that for us and then say, I give you the choice. And it's so simple. All you have to do is say, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. I received that offering into my life, and I accept the premise that he came out of the grave to prove that he was without his own sin. Instead, he died for my sin. That's what he would ask you to do. Call on the name of Jesus, be reconciled to God through his shed blood, and it is done. It is done forever. I would ask that you've never, if you have never done that, that you would do it today. That would be my one plea to you. I've got a closing verse for you from Luke chapter 13. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and from the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. Great stuff there, all because of Jesus. Next week is Numbers 3, 1 through 13. Not so many verses next week. Of all the grapes on the vine, it's entitled, The Levites Shall Be Mine. And that'll be our fourth number sermon. And I'd like to tell you that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. And it may seem at times as if you are lost in a desert, wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there, carefully leading you to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? A short poem. It's a long poem, but it goes very quickly. It's called The Layout of the Tribes. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, these words to them he was relaying. Every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard, such shall be their seating. Beside the emblems of his father's house, they shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting. On the east side, toward the rising of the sun, those of the standard of the forces with Judah, tribes three, shall camp according to their armies, and Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the leader of the children of Judah, shall be. And his army was numbered, though so bred, at 74,600. Those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar, and shall be the leader of the children of Issachar, Nathaniel, the son of Zuar. And his army was numbered, though so bred, at 54,400. Then comes the tribe of Zebulun, and shall be the leader of the children of Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helon. And his army was numbered, though so bred, at 57,400. All who are numbered according to their armies of the forces with Judah, all together and not dispersed, 186,400, these shall break camp first. On the south side shall be the standard of the forces with Reuben according to their armies, for sure. And the leader of the children of Reuben shall be Elitzur, the son of Shedeur. And his army was numbered, those so bred at 46,500. Those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Simeon by and by, and the leader of the children of Simeon shall be Shalumiel, the son of Zurashadai. And his army was numbered, though so bred, at 59,300. Then comes the tribe of Gad, as the record does tell, and the leader of the children of Gad shall be Eliasaph, the son of Reuel. And his army was numbered, a number unique and nifty, at 40,650. All who are numbered according to their armies of the forces with Reuben, a lot certainly, 151,450, they shall to break camp the second B. And the tabernacle of meeting shall move out with the camp of the Levites in the middle of the camps you see. 
as the camp, so they shall move out. Everyone in his place by their standards, so shall it be. On the west side shall be the standard of the forces with Ephraim, according to their armies, so it shall be understood. And the leader of the children of Ephraim shall be Elishama, the son of Amihud. And his army was numbered, though so bred, at 40,500. Next to him comes the tribe of Manasseh, for sure. And the leader of the children of Manasseh shall be Gamaliel, the son of Padazur. And his army was numbered, though so bred, at 32,200. Then comes the tribe of Benjamin with all certainty. And the leader of the children of Benjamin shall be Abidan, the son of Gideoni. And his army was numbered, though so bred, at 35,400. All who are numbered according to their armies of the forces with Ephraim, so says the word, 108,100, they shall be to break camp the third. The standard of the forces with Dan shall be on the north side according to their armies by and by. And the leader of the children of Dan shall be Ahizar, the son of Amishadai. And his army was numbered, though so bred, at 62,700. Those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Asher. These are words to act upon. And the leader of the children of Asher shall be Pagiel, the son of Akran. And his army was numbered, though so bred, at 41,500. Then comes the tribe of Naphtali. His name is now drawn. And the leader of the children of Naphtali shall be Ahira, the son of Inan. And his army was numbered, though so bred, at 53,400. All who are numbered of the forces with Dan, all those so amassed, 157,600, they shall break camp with their standards last. These are the ones who are numbered of the children of Israel by their father's houses, a number large and nifty. All who are numbered according to their armies of the forces were 603,550. But the Levites were not numbered among the children of Israel, just as the Lord commanded Moses, as the Lord to Moses did tell Thus the children of Israel did, according to all that the Lord to Moses commanded, so they camped by their standards, and so they broke camp, each one by his family, according to their father's houses, as the situation demanded. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness, and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess, and so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock, our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand, and may we take it and to our lives daily it apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah, we shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you that there is treasure even in difficult passages like today's. It's great to be in exciting passages where a son runs away from home and is reconciled to his father, and it's great to be in passages where things are going on in human activity. We, we respond well to that, but it's hard for us to read your word sometimes and to understand why you give us passages with such minute detail, and yet it's all there for a reason, and it's all there to show us something greater, a greater picture of something else leading to something else and ultimately leading us to the foot of the cross. And so we do enjoy spending time in these passages, learning what they're there for, and applying them to our lives as we can. Lord, thank you for this wonderful superior word, which is such a delight, such a treasure, such a water to our soul on a hot day in the desert. Thank you for it. And Lord, we commit the Lord's Supper to you. We do this because we honor you for what you did, and we are sure that Christ is coming again. And so until he does, we'll continue to take the Lord's Supper and reflect on the goodness that you've displayed in our lives despite our fallen nature. 
Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we exalt you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.